2: I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guests are four of the five co-creators of The Unfortunates at ACT through April 10th. They are John Beavers, Ian Merrigan, Rami's Monsef, and Casey Lee Hurt. This show came from Oregon originally. The Unfortunates is kind of a dream show. In other words, it begins and ends in the real world, but most of it takes place inside someone's head. And I want to go back and talk about the origins of this show because I understand it began with a song, St. James Infirmary, and Rami's Monsef, you're the guy who originally had that idea.
0: Yeah, I was. We had this opportunity to write something, and it just seemed like that was a natural place to start. It was a song that I had been obsessed with for years since seeing a Betty Boop cartoon at a Spike and Mike Festival of Animation when I was about 11 years old. You know, there was no, no internet back then, so you couldn't see something and then immediately go look it up and you know, find out what it is. I saw it once and it just kinda haunted me for years and I kept thinking about it. And then it became a song that I played with an old friend of mine and then just was a thing that like had kind of run around in my head for many, many years. And when we had a chance to write something, it just seemed like fertile ground and interesting source material to work with.
2: So let's go back and talk about how you got a chance to do this.
0: Yeah, I got an offer to work at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival and I asked Bill Raush if he would consider letting me bring some of my friends down to work on something. And at the time that I asked him, I didn't even know that we were going to do this. I had just been working with these guys and making music with these guys. And I felt like we had something special and like it was worth going further down that path with these guys. And he said yes. And he gave everyone six weeks of housing. Everyone came down there and we got to work and we came up with what was the first version of The Unfortunates.
2: Well, you were working on a a trio called Three Blind Mice. And how did that start as we go further back? Ian Merrigan. I was living in New York. I had met
3: John doing a production of Romeo and Juliet in Seattle 10 years ago, and we were the tallest members of the cast and so naturally became bosom friends. When I got back to New York, I met Rami's at a party where we were also like a head taller than everyone at the party. So we only had each other to talk to. and. We all were making music individually, and we had, I had these opportunities, these people that would book me to do shows in New York, and I would get to do really cool, weird things. Like I would tell a fairy tale, and a performance painter would paint, or I'd put together like a little music trio or something. And so we decided we would get together. None of us at the time knew how to play any musical <laughs> instruments, and we're also tired of the idea of performing to attract music. We love to sing, so we got together on my roof, and started harmonizing and writing these really weird, kind of poetic hip hop songs. They would involve, like, one of us would die, and then we would have to snap and get the audience to snap to bring that one back to life. And then we would sing and harmonize over that. And so that, you know, we would build those shows and perform them in New York. And eventually, we craving someone with actual musical aptitude gravitated toward Casey, who John knew from Hawaii years ago. And like, he merged into the unit.
2: Casey Lee Hurt, at that point, you come in and you begin working with them. You play instruments. Were you also joining the group in a weird way? or?
4: Yeah, a weird way is a good way to describe <laughs> it. John and I knew each other from high school in Hawaii, and, and we made music together back then and had a very strong love for hip-hop. And so when he told me that they had started a group and been uh, collaborating together, I just gravitated towards the idea and brought my guitar along. And I loved to sing. I grew up in the church and always learned gospel songs and hymns and things like that. And so it was a pretty natural progression for us to just join in and start singing harmonies together. And from there, these ideas of new songs, new ideas, and, and really, we all kind of took off running with the idea of the St. James Infirmary and made it our own. And then it developed into this.
2: Was there any interest before that in, say, doing musical plays per se from you?
4: My resume goes Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dream Coat, my senior year of high school, to the unfortunates at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. <laughs> and that's uh, in the 10 years between all of that, I had my own band and, and performed around. And Ian and I actually toured a lot together and continued to play together. It wasn't a natural direction for me to go, but once I found the theater, I really felt like I found a second home. It's captivated me ever since.
2: Ramis, Monsef, at what point? Did you begin to kind of figure, okay, something could be done? Just when this guy contacted you, why would he contact a group of singers? He
0: was talking to me about doing a thing in Hamlet because he wanted to do the the play within the play as sort of like a, like a hip-hop show. And so he wanted me to come play the Player King and help sort of... F- formulate that with a couple other people bringing all these guys into it was my sort of counter to that saying like that sounds great and all but like I was also really interested in making something of our own like I said we had been playing these shows and and I felt like there was something special going on with this group and I wasn't ready to walk away from it to say I was done with it and I knew going to Oregon would mean that if I didn't find a way to bring these guys along with me you know it was a gamble on his part and on mine, you know, but it paid off.
2: So now you've got a song, you've got a place to have a venue, and you've got people, but you have nothing else. So (laughs) John Beavers, what happens then? Well, at
1: this point, enter a very important member of our collaborative group by the name of Shauna Cooper, who directed the production that's at ACT now. She directed the production at Oregon Shakes. And Rami's had seen a piece that she had done and felt somehow intuitively that she was the right person to guide this mess. And boy, was he right. And she is um, beyond brilliant. I could go on. But the point was that she was also very tolerant of this, like (laughs) – slapdash, like, let's stay up until two in the morning, and make up songs, and then from those songs, let's write narrative, that string them together, and wouldn't it be interesting if there was a love story, but wouldn't it also be interesting if there were birds, and are they birds, and no, they're not quite birds, but are you still having fun yet, and she, for some reason, she was still in, despite our our sort of chaotic and, and playful methods, and really, I think it's been her lens sort of distilling our kind of endless creativity, but also endless buffoonery that led to a half hour or maybe 45 minute piece that took place at Oregon Shakespeare Festival at midnight in a decommissioned theater space where people showed up and for whatever reason decided to stay up late and come see what we were doing. And that piece caught the attention of the administration there. And they said, we should give these guys some space to keep working on this. And she's stayed with us at every incarnation. And I honestly believe if if there hadn't been that captain at the helm, we would have made some waves, but I don't know if
4: they would have all gone in the same direction.
2: (laughs) There's a lot of different music. Were all of you composing or was it primarily you, Casey, who was composing?
4: We have all had different ways in which we've written songs or pieces of songs or ideas that we've brought to the table. And You know, I think much like Rami's has said, that there's a yes and mentality to the composition and the direction that has really led to these pieces. And I think that, you know, really at this point, it's
3: kind of impossible to tell who has written what part.
2: Ian Merrigan.
3: We wrote a lot of these things, leaving voicemails for each other and sending emails and having silly ideas and jokes turning into songs. And at the end of any session, the person we would go to to be like, hey, man, I hear a thing. I think it sounds like this was Casey. And so if you hear instrumentation in the show that you're like, that really moves me, Casey did that and has really done an unbelievable job creating a score, bringing life to the things like his yes and that he puts on top of anything that gets brought to the table makes everybody's heads bob up and down, which is the element that we sort of thrive on. I just had to throw that out there because part of what I love about working in this group of people is that Nobody passes the buck, but everybody passes the credit, and it's one of the reasons why we love working with each other, is I just so admire what all of these guys do so much, and I, I really admire all the work that Casey's done.
2: At this point, there are four of you, five of you, six of you. I mean, where did Christopher fit in? Because he's not here right now. Chris got brought on because we were heading out of the
1: continuing to be allowed to workshop at OSF stage into them very seriously considering producing this thing, and As first-time playwrights all around, Bill felt that we should consider, though it was only a recommendation, we should consider talking to a book writer. And so we met Chris and just kind of had an instant click. We spoke a lot of the same language and were influenced by a lot of the same music. And so he helped us begin to shape the book. And and actually, then that, once we saw what that meant, then it became very much a collaboration and, and continued to be a collaboration. But he was brought on really to help us put pages in and we learned a lot.
2: So we're all sort of talking around what exactly this show is. So let's get down to it. Let's look at the show itself and how that developed within the context of the show. You've got this song, and do you know at the beginning that it's going to be kind of an anti-war show, a show about death? What did you know at the beginning, and how did that develop? That day that I had the conversation with Bill about bringing these guys out there,
0: I came back to Ian's apartment that night and told him, I was like, you know, let's write this thing about St. James Infirmary. And he went on Wikipedia and like pulled up like, oh, it's based on this song called The Unfortunate Rake. We should call the show The Unfortunate. It's like, yeah, okay, sure, great. And then we just started finding as many versions of that song as we possibly could. And there are so many. I mean, hundreds at least. And all of them have slight differences. One thing that sort of runs as a theme is that The Unfortunate Rake is a song about a soldier. It was made popular during World War One. It's a song about a soldier going off to war, seeing all this death, and then coming home and finding that his lo- loved one has contracted a social disease and has died of it. So he goes and sees all this death and comes home to death okay war is a thing that's something to draw from there's the name big joe mckinney or big joe mckinney depending on the version that you're listening to who's the only character mentioned by name so like seemed pretty clear that that should be our protagonist there's the saint james infirmary itself which feels like a character there's the woman that he's singing to which feels like a character and then someone needs to run the infirmary and that's when you get the doctor and then the rooks developed later because you have to have someone to push the story along and push the characters along and give them something to fight against levels to the villains and i think the rooks were more clearly villains before and now i think they're more sort of it's a little more of a gray area as to what they i think they sort of straddle the line they live in trickster world and those are the
2: creatures with the big the beaks yeah so you're beginning to develop this and you still don't know the specifics. I mean, what comes next? The The songs, deciding that Ian is going to be the star or the central character?
3: I wasn't there for that meeting, which is really funny. They got together in Oregon without me, and then I got the call. I was at the time, I weighed 100 pounds more, and I was a doorman in New York, and they called and were like, hey, man, you're Big Joe McKinney. I was like, I'm not sure what that means, but in the initial process was a bit of a really sort of crazy and beautiful land grab, where if you had an instinct about a thing that went in the show, it was just a true thing. If you said it in an email or on a voicemail, if you had an idea for a song and sent it out, it just existed. And so we started to have these continents of music and emotion and trying to arrange them into a thing that made sense. And and at the time, an interesting thing that was happening was we were writing incredibly important plot points buried into poetry in a 16-bar hip-hop verse. Yeah. And so then we were totally mystified when people didn't understand what was happening. <laughs> and so then uh, enter a woman named Louis Douthit, who's the head of the literary department and the head dramaturg up at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, who agreed to sit down with us at a table with a big piece of butcher paper and start marking things down to say, here's what your play actually looks like? Is this what you really want to be doing? Step back and look at it from 10,000 feet. I don't know that any of us could actually repeat that process because what we did, we did without knowing what we were doing. We just followed our instincts. We made music, we told stories, we sang songs and cracked jokes, created a concert that then some really intelligent people looked at and helped us actually see and begin to break the bones of That concert turned into a totally different hour and a half show at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, which turned into a completely different hour and a half show here at ACT.
4: And I will say that the thing that has been consistent throughout, and actually to a lot of controversy, is that we have always known we wanted to tell the story of death and living the last moments of your life to the fullest extent, and and trusting that there was a hope even in only a few moments left. That was there from the very first conversation that we had and through all of the different workshops. Brilliant people who we love and respect very much all along the way have asked us to remove that from the show. (laughs) (laughs) And we have refused to do it because that was the story we wanted to tell. We really believed powerfully in that, and we wanted to write a show about death and about a way to face death that actually gave a lot of hope to the viewers. And that has been consistent, and, and, and I'm very proud of the work that we've done in that respect.
2: I have a friend in the hospital now who may or may not be dying, and I'm thinking about this, and it's making it all very, very difficult for me reading about the show after I saw it.
0: Another thing that has also remained consistent and that's been really important to us about the show is that it generates a feeling of catharsis. I read all reviews and everything like that, and it's, it's, it's funny to read people saying well there's there's not a whole lot of plot and I say okay yeah you might be right about that and that's fine but what we're not trying to do is plot necessarily we're trying to chart feeling we're trying to chart emotion and to achieve catharsis and sometimes you can do that through a delicately structured narrative with very carefully chosen and thick dialogue and sometimes you do it with a sneak attack in a show that takes place in a dream with a clown and a bunch of guys with beaks on their heads. And that's what has made it felt, I think, special to all of us is allowing people that are going through what you are going through and what, you know, your friend may be going through to at least be able to get out the grief that you're experiencing, or to find a sense of hope within the grief. That's really been our sort of overarching goal
4: all along. It was a conversation that was shared with us after the fact, but Bill Raush, after he saw The Midnight Project, had a conversation with Louis Douthit and said, I don't know what that play is about, but there's something there. To Bill's credit, and I think really to the Oregon Shakespeare Festival's credit of, of developing new works, that... They trusted the involved so much that they were willing to take a risk on it. And that risk is now bringing to light these ideas and these challenging topics at time that I think the world is better for to have, have it in the
2: world. For those who have seen the show, how important is it, do you think, for them to grasp what exactly is going on or just to sit back and enjoy the concert? You know... I've pretty consistently
1: through both productions, I think more in Ashland than here, but I've had people approach me after the show with tears in their eyes and say, I don't know what that was about, but I loved it so much. And I think at first we didn't know what to do with that. And I think maybe just through the time that we've been doing this and learning to trust our own impulses a little bit more, like I'm, I'm really at peace with that now. And that's not the overall consensus, I think, as people walk out. I I feel like people walk away with a really personal understanding of what story they saw and what parts of it they interpreted. But it it is intentionally a, a bombarding of visually and sonically. Very much, I think, the way that Joe is being bombarded in his mind in his last moments in his dream with more than he can take in in a sensory way and our goal was specifically going into this production was to be sure that we were letting audiences know as best as we could that that's okay as early on as we could to say hey this probably feels really strange you're right where you should be you know (laughs) what I mean and and because that's where we like to play, we like to play in an imaginary world where we can't fully see all the edges to the frame, and that's exciting for us, and and allows I think for what's really important with this show a very
3: personal interpretation. And to speak to that, I always find it some people do feel like they haven't understood what they've witnessed, and yet uh, after spending a second and asking them what they saw, mm-hmm. everybody drops like a fully beautiful synopsis of what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not exactly sure what it is. We've worked really hard to make the play as invitational as it can be. I think it goes to some uncomfortable territories. And it also does, like you were saying, it deals with this strange dream. So here's this man who is facing death and he dreams of great courage and strength and is endowed with enormous fists. He dreams of a, the most beautiful woman to come and comfort him. And yet in his dream, she's guiding him with an inner strength that he wouldn't have necessarily asked for. She is without the arms to comfort him in the way that your dream will sometimes give you what you need but not what you ask for.
2: Is that the reason that she has no arms, which was the question more people ask than any other? I think it's a really interesting
3: question, not to be sort of infuriatingly vague, but I don't mind that people have that question when they leave. It is a dream that's visiting this haunted man before he faces death. I I honestly think if you ask all of us, we're going to have slightly different responses, because really at its core, it is a piece of poetry. And in this piece of poetry, here's this man who is taught what true strength is by this woman with no arms, who wants nothing more than to be held and comforted. And yet here's this person who cannot hold and cannot comfort him. And also this sort of idea that we stumbled on that you can't ask someone to lay down their arms unless you walk up to them without any.
2: Who was the person who developed the idea of the woman with no arms? It's
0: me. I think also, before I speak to that, I just want to say, like, I think it's a very it's a very American thing, I think, to want to be fed a standard narrative. It's, it's, there's a sort of storytelling that we are comfortable with, that's safe to us, that is easily digestible. There's Steven Spielberg. And then there's David Lynch, who I'm more of a fan of. You know, there's the straightforward narrative and then there's Terrence Malick. I prefer not to be told exactly what I'm supposed to feel. I prefer to be left with questions. I prefer to walk out of experiencing a piece of art, being able to consider it and talk about it and discuss it and not know exactly what everything was at the end of the day. But with the arms and the fists, that was at least my seed. Um, And there's an answer to it in the graphic novel but I don't think
4: it's the only answer.
2: Casey Lee Hurt. This is
4: not an answer to the question, but it is a for all of the creator and artist types out there. I will talk about the value of it. That when you create a piece of art, I think it's very important to intentionally put obstacles in your way, because for us that was and has continued to be a major challenge. You have you know an actor who has no arms and one who has giant fists. Like there's a lot of things they can and can't do on stage and the ways that they can interact with each other that really forces an objective. And that is something that I'm incredibly grateful for within this piece, because it has always challenged us in a way that we didn't expect. And it pushed us to think outside the box continually over and over again throughout the process. And I think we really can attribute some of our best
2: work to those obstacles being in our way. There's a lot of choreography in this, and we're all talking about the music and the story. Where did the choreography come from? In
1: this production, there's a a really brilliant choreographer, Erica Chung-Shook, who came on after having worked with Shauna Cooper before on a former production of another play, and Shauna just felt really strongly that Erica was the creative energy to have in this room, And, and she really was, largely because... She is so collaborative and so investigatory in the way that she goes about encouraging movement that she already sees present in actors' bodies, that she already sees present in actors' impulses and in the rhythm of songs. And so it was very much a discovery process throughout the creation of this particular production. Erica led the discovery of the movement as much as she imposed her own movement on us. And I think that makes for the sort of freewheeling
2: multi-genre feel to the movement. Ian Merrigan, you do a lot of dancing in it because you're the central character. Were you doing dancing before this? Is this new to you? He has to look me right in the face when he
3: says it, so <laughs> you listening at home feel differently, that's fine. Um, I went to a, a conservatory in North Carolina called the North Carolina School of the Arts, and a really wonderful actor training program, really incredible, incredible dance teachers there. I hated every minute of most dance classes I had to take, not because I thought the teachers were not wonderful. They are wonderful, but I just couldn't. I had to trick myself into doing it. I wasn't a physically active person. There was a section of one semester where we did tap dance, and all of a sudden, I really came alive. It made sense to me, the rhythm of it, the movement of it. And then all of a sudden, I had my in to dancing and to moving. And and like John was saying, Erica, who's a really, she's a wonderful choreographer and a, and a Bay Area artist. Uh, she has a company here, and I can't remember the company's name, but she's a really spectacular dancer and choreographer. She choreographed to me and my body. And the character of Joe feels cool and strong most of the time. And so she did her best to create movement for me that made me feel cool and strong.
2: When I was looking over the material from ACT that the performers, the people who were the, quote, performers, also participated somewhat in the creation as well, Taylor Jones plays Ray, and that's a very central character. What role did she have in the creation? Well, yeah, I feel like coming
1: into this production, we had done a lot of work from our last production at Ashland. A lot of our work was focused on activating this character of Ray, and continuing to explore her and her intentions in the way that she coerced and invited Joe to be the man that she thought he could be. And so there were new songs added. There was a lot of new dialogue and reworking of dialogue to shape this newer, truer array. And the actor that we found, Taylor Amon Jones, to play this role just slipped into it like a glove. And so we very much had a a vision of where we wanted this, this yeah, I slipped into it. like a glove. <laughs> They're looking at me and laughing because it's a funny role to slip into like a glove. She's got no being, arms. The yeah. point is those kinds of things you walk, you walk right into those booby traps a lot. in this room. But she, uh, she has um, a virtuosity about her as an actor and as a woman and as a vocalist that, Just had such power and vulnerability simultaneously that it really, from the moment uh, Casey and Shauna saw her her first audition, the word was, "We can see Ray. We can see Ray." That was such a special moment. Janet Foster, the casting director, has given us an incredible cast.
4: Yeah, one of the things I'd, I'd say too about us as collaborators is that throughout the process, as early as the Midnight Project, we have always desired people in the room, actors in the room, who are world creators. Who have been very generous with us along the process of of developing and and in being in that yes and mentality, and so this piece is so much a family piece because I feel like anybody who has ever been involved in it has left something with it, even as they've gone on to other pieces, and and a lot of the people that we've have worked with have gone to be very successful and had blossoming television and, and theater careers, and all of them have yeah been just so generous to us that there were stories of actors who were in the previous production reaching out to actors who were in this production talking about what it was like and and where they saw the character going and what has changed and and I think for us that has always just been a value is to be collaborative in the world that we invite
3: people into. Coco the clown in the show has always just really cared very deeply for Joe and there's this beautiful thing I just found out the other day that our current Coco and the Coco from the Oregon production text each other and talk to each other about the show and about me and about <laughs> am I taken care of? And both of them really, like, even in the dressing room, Eddie will come up to me and just sort of make sure everything's going okay for me and I'm, I'm feeling good. So it's this really beautiful family, and the lineage goes on. For, we had two of our previous handsome Carls in the audience last night watching the show, wow. and that was a really extraordinary experience because everybody who has worked on this show – feels I think a really just sense of ownership over having shepherded it from where it was to where it's going and where it continues to go.
2: Speaking of the clown one of the (laughs) secondary questions I got along with why no arms was why is there a clown and what does he represent and for that we're going to talk to Ramiz Mansa.
0: Yeah we play it actually in the lobby before people come into the show but there's As I mentioned before, that cartoon, the Betty Boop cartoon, which was the first place I ever heard that song. And one of the characters in that cartoon is Coco the Clown. That cartoon itself is just, I mean, really, if you haven't watched it yet, go do yourself a favor and watch it. It's really an incredible piece of work. It's, it's a Fleischer cartoon. It's all animated by Fleischer. He did the entire thing himself, including the backgrounds, it's which is, method. it is, it is. It's an acid trip. And it's the first time they used rotoscoping in animation. And they rotoscoped Coco dancing over Cab Calloway. So, because initially all the side characters were just chorus members, they were apparitions. They didn't have any names. They didn't have any personalities. They didn't, they were just there to narrate the story of Joe, basically. And as we were developing it, we're like, well, we got to give these ghosts something to do. You know, give <laughs> them some personality. Give them a hat to wear for crying out loud. And Coco was one of the the first characters that we came up with because it was it just seemed obvious. It's like he's he's a main thread in the cartoon, which is seed of the show and like you know it's a dream so dream logic bring that in yeah he's become a very central and very important part to the heart of the show
2: it almost sounds as if before going to the show it might make sense to track down on youtube that betty boop cartoon what's the name of it do you remember
0: it's it's called it's snow white it's betty boop snow white if you put that in on youtube you'll find it
2: yeah you know you can it depends
0: on how you want to experience it You know, do you do you want to know as much as you can or do you want to just go in there and let it wash over you like a Gertrude Stein poem and
2: and get what you want out of it? You know, it's just really it's it's up to how you want to experience your art. Well, what I did was I kind of let it wash over. And then today I began reading all of this stuff and going, oh, that's what I saw. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, you know, I have no idea what the hell it was, but it was it was good. I mean, you know, that was kind of. Uh, You mentioned before, Ramiz, you mentioned that there was a a graphic novel of the Unfortunates, and I know in doing all this research, the names of Jack Kirby and Ralph Bakshi, among others, came up, Mm -hmm. which means there is some kind of relationship to comic books as well.
0: Absolutely. I mean, comic books have been a huge influence on me and my brain and my sort of imagination, I guess, so... As we were building the show, I was amassing a large collection of art books to bring in as like as visual research, basically, you know. So bringing in a lot of Kirby books and um, yeah, Ralph Bakshi is a huge influence. Crumb, Bernie Wrightson, the old creepy and eerie magazines, Heavy Metal, all that stuff has been a huge influence on me visually. So, yeah, yeah, comic books are, you know, have, have fed this thing,
2: definitely. And I think
0: it's even more of a comic book on stage now, which really excites me.
2: And that's sort of why the, the giant hands, if mm-hmm. you look at them, they're almost like Jack Kirby giant hands. Yeah. Or the arms that keep extending all of that material yeah. has that comic book feel yeah, to it. I think the
0: arms are a little more in the Bakshi world. <laughs> and Yeah, the hands are in Kirby's world, yeah.
2: Actually, the arm's also in Max Fleischer oh, yeah. world. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Is this the last stop for the Unfortunates? What's happening beyond this? Do you have you guys have any idea? You're playing through April 10th, but then what? Anybody want to pick up on that?
0: If you're listening and you're a commercial producer
3: <laughs>
0: and you want to make this thing keep going and you like making money, oh, no,
3: I'm kidding. Um, um, hopefully it will... Continue on. Do you like confusing shows about (laughs) birds and people with or without arms and giant fists? Well, give us a call.
2: (laughs) One other area I want to talk about, because something that affects me, the acoustics in the Strand, I have hearing aids, the acoustics in the Strand are incredible. Yeah. And how did that help you? Did it help you in putting together the show at all, specifically for The Strand. Also, The Strand itself has a small proscenium with a very, very long, big backstage, which meant you had to make it work there, too.
4: Is a very big gift to us to know the space we were going into with so much... Time b- before doing the production, and I think for all of us, and, and for me in particular, as we are crafting this new piece, the um, musically the composition and orchestration is is very different from what we did in, at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. And the desire for that actually was to create a soundscape that left room for the human voice to be the um, focal point. And so we the, the instruments that we chose and the development where the instruments came in and out and how we used that was really just to showcase ten voices singing all at once. And to know that and then to know how to use acoustic instruments within the space and to use horns that could resonate in the space without very little amplification and trust that actually the acoustics would do all of the carrying and heavy, heavy work for us was very exciting to me. And so it was a beautiful and really exciting experiment to have these ideas start to be fostered and then plant the seeds of it and then develop it and grow it to a piece and then find out that it worked. <laughs> Cuz uh because you know because ultimately you know you can trust an impulse when you hear the acoustics of a room but until you get the band in the room until you you know you don't really know. Also we have a really great team behind us who helped us develop that and but ultimately I think that that was the the thing that became very exciting was trusting this new space and kind of the confined space and using that as a benefit, you know, trying to fill every square inch of that stage and every square inch of that house so that it really could resonate throughout the whole thing and be heard very clearly throughout.
3: I think this is also a good time to mention the incredible team. So the design team that we had that that filled this space, that saw this space and designed sets, costumes. We had Sybil Wickersheimer who was also our designer at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. Katie O'Neill was also our costume designer at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. Russell Ciampa came on and did um, lights for us, and Brendan Hines did the sound design. Really, everyone did incredibly. And then on top of that, we had Paul James Prendergrass as our associate director, kind of really helming that ship. But even more so the, in terms of like longevity of vision Carrie Perloff Don Scott Cooper Beatrice Beso all of whom came to OSF and saw the production several times and then came back and said this new space that you've invested in Uh, to to all of their donors and sponsors here at ACT, of which there are numerous. The support of the theater is overwhelming. This new space that you've been giving us money for that you haven't even seen yet, we have the perfect, brand-new, risky, (laughs) half-mixed-reviewed, armless piece to put in it. And, uh, And the community of San Francisco really embraced us. We got to come here and workshop the piece change it design it for this city for this space and uh, that has been a really incredible gift that this theater and this theater community has given us
0: just like to say we don't like to tell the strand the strand if you're listening we don't like to tell the strand that has a small proscenium um (laughs) because it'll get an inferiority complex (laughs) and i just like strand if you're listening your proscenium is just the perfect size and um, you know it pleases us greatly. So we, you know, we, we appreciate your for
2: Ramiz was in Law and Order, and Ian. Uh, well, you, I don't. Let's see anything you were. <laughs> You're a doorman. Can't <laughs> act. And uh, John here, um, Malcolm in the Middle, Gotham. You were in Gotham? Okay, so so here's one final question for one of you. What is the weirdest performing experience that you've had?
1: It's this one. This this show is a real break in the monotony of what you can end up doing in the performing arts world. You can get in some stuff that's very it's very s- systematic and, you know, very cookie-cutter and we've been able to Break a lot of rules that we didn't even know existed, and do some some really strange and evocative stuff in this show. And performing with these guys is is about as fun as it gets because we're living a dream that we made up, and that this it doesn't get any weirder than this. Like, now we'll do some more TV, and we'll you know go wherever they ask us to go. But this is this is about as weird as it gets to
3: take this trip. Living a dream we made up about a dream we made up. Yeah. If you ever want to have a weird time, do a play about your own death for six years. <laughs> <laughs> it'll, it'll eventually get to you. If you
2: have a weirder performance experience, holler at me. <laughs> but it's better than being a doorman.
3: You know, I, not, I, don't, I no comment.
2: <laughs> In the Unfortunate Plays at ACT Strand Theater through April 10th. For more information, you can go to ACT website, act-sf.org. To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com, or find the Bookwaves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast.